Well, let us uh, continue in worship by opening our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. This morning we're looking at verses 12 through 14. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Just for the sake of context, let's read through verse 16. Listen to the reading of God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have now of opening your holy word. Father, give us faith. Allow us, Lord, to listen in faith, to believe the things that we hear and read. May your spirit continue to do his good work in us. And as always, we pray that you will save sinners, that you will continue to sanctify the saints, and that above all things, Christ will be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in a book titled A Sad Departure, the author David Randall recounts how the Church of Scotland slowly became hostile to biblical orthodoxy and how he, along with other believers, were forced to leave the church for this very reason. The church became open to not only open, but accepting of beliefs and practices that are explicitly contrary to biblical truth. Now, in an effort to explain how this sad change came about within the church of Scotland, Randall provided a, a good illustration by retelling a story he heard somewhere else. It went like this, and I quote, The story is told of a multi-storied office building where cracks appeared in the wall on the 42nd floor. The managing director sent for an architect to come and investigate. He took the elevator to the 42nd floor to meet the architect, but couldn't find him. Eventually, the architect was located in the basement. The managing director complained with him, what are you doing down here? We have serious problems on the 42nd floor. The architect's answer was, you may have cracks on the 42nd floor, but your problem is not on the 42nd floor. Your problem is down here in the basement. It later came to light that a janitor was building a garage at home. 
And every evening, he chiseled out one brick from the wall, put it in his bag, and took it home. After several years, cracks appeared high up on the 42nd floor. End quote. If the book of Acts were a building, chapter one would be the basement. Specifically, the basement is found in Acts 1, 12 through 26. Therefore, this morning we are face to face with one of the most significant moments in the history of the church. And I say most significant because we are looking at the very foundation. In fact, what we have in front of us are the two pillars upon which the church has been built throughout the ages. Or to be more specific yet, we are looking at the two foundational convictions upon which the church has stood and advanced for millennia. But before I tell you what those two foundational convictions are, let me point out the obvious. When you begin to see cracks in the life of the church, the people of God need to go deep down to the basement where the foundation is and begin there. To fix the cracks in a wall is futile endeavor if the root cause is never addressed. But I can guarantee you that when the church becomes visibly weak and begins to crack, the reason can normally be attributed to invisible realities that have been neglected. In other words, when the church grows weak, you can know that the two foundational convictions have begun to erode. So then, what are these two foundational convictions? Number one, we must pray. Number two, God's word is true. There you have it. Where am I getting this from? Verse 14 and verse 16 of Acts 1. In verse 14, we read that the, the first disciples were devoting themselves to what? Prayer. They were devoting themselves to prayer. And in verse 16, we read Peter's conviction that the scripture had to be fulfilled. You notice those words? It had to be fulfilled. We will find these two foundational convictions again throughout the book of Acts presented in different ways. But here's a very powerful summary given by the 12 apostles themselves. In Acts chapter 6, a very practical need arises as the church continues to grow. In response to that need, the apostles appoint other men to meet the need. So the question comes up, why couldn't the apostles take care of the need themselves? The answer is given in Acts chapter 6 verse 4. The apostles said that they couldn't take the time to meet that specific need because they said, we will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and to the ministry of the word. There you have it. The two pillars or the two foundational convictions that sustain the life of the church. If these two are weak, you will begin to see cracks elsewhere. But not only is this applicable to the church at large, this is also true of our family and our individual lives. 
If you are beginning to see spiritual cracks in your life, sin creeping in, you can be certain that one or both of these two foundational convictions are beginning to erode in your life. So as we move forward in the Christian life, and as we face trials and tribulations and joys and sorrows, we need to constantly be asking ourselves these two questions. Am I a person who walks in dependence on God as demonstrated through my prayer life? And number two, am I a person who walks in the confidence that the word of God is true? My brothers and sisters, ask yourself those questions constantly. Why? Because as Psalm 11:3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Matthew Henry pointed out that this foundation of which David speaks in that Psalm is the foundation of hope in God, hope in God. This is what the world, sin and Satan are seeking to destroy our hope in God. And this is our foundation, my brothers and sisters. And so I ask, what are we doing when we pray? And what are we doing when we meditate upon God's word? We are simply expressing one thing, our hope in God, our hope in God. We pray because our hope is in God and we live in the scriptures also because our hope is in God. Therefore, our utter need of prayer and our confidence in the word of God are the two foundational convictions upon which we stand. We lose sight of them to our own detriment. Now this morning we will consider the first foundational conviction, namely we must walk in dependence on the Lord, which is expressed through prayer. We will save the second foundational conviction for next time. So our question for this morning is this. Are we like the first disciples, a people devoted to prayer? Are we a people devoted to prayer? Let us glean some lessons from the disciples. Let me give you the historical setting first. We find the disciples in verse 12 returning to Jerusalem after seeing the ascension of Christ. This return to Jerusalem brings us back to the command given to them by Jesus in Acts 1 verse, verse 4. In which Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Now we know that the spirit came during Pentecost, which is also called the feast of weeks. Jesus died during the Passover. There were 50 days between the Passover and the feast of weeks. Jesus spent how many days with the apostles? 40. Therefore the events recorded in Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 26 took place within how many days? 10, 10 days. The disciples spent 10 days waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. So this 10 day period is right in between the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the spirit. But Luke saw the need to give us some details, some details, namely two specifics. First, the length of the journey from Mount Olivet to Jerusalem, which he said was a Sabbath day journey. This meant the distance was about three quarters of a mile. 
Now, he's simply pointing out that it was a, a close distance. There's a second detail that I want to spend more time in. Consider with me verse 13. In verse 13, Luke mentions the 11 disciples by name. Minus, of course, Judas, the traitor. And he also mentions women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, by the way, also had a need for prayer. He had the need to pray to the Lord and other brothers, which could be a reference either to Jesus' half-brothers or to brothers and sisters in general. It is not very clear what is meant. But this we know. The first disciples were together. Not only were they together, but in the Gospel of Luke, we read that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So when you put together the Gospel account... And the Acts account, we come away knowing this. The first disciples were together. They experienced great joy. And they spent these 10 days either in the temple or in an upper room praying and praising God. Why is this significant? This is very significant for it reminds us of the power of Jesus to build his church. Let me explain. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are given a bitter taste of what human unreliability looks like. The night Jesus was betrayed by Judas and handed over to the authorities, Jesus said this, you will all fall away because of me this night. To which Peter, of course, replied in full confidence Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. We know how that turned out, right? Literally a few verses later, Judas shows up with the crowds to arrest Jesus. They take Jesus and immediately after we read, then all the disciples left him and fled. Before the crucifixion, the disciples were scattered because of fear after the resurrection and ascension. The disciples are together because of faith. This is indeed a great note of encouragement to all of us. My brothers and sisters, Jesus built his church. And even though we do at times go through times of trial, disagreements, and even division, the Lord holds his church together by his power. This has been true since the very beginning of the life of the church. And it is true today. Satan has sought to divide the church, scatter Christians and intimidate believers in the Lord. The church has gone through trials, temptations, persecutions, and ordeals without number. Societies change and they will continue to change. Governments arise and governments fall. Empires come and empires go. Yet the church remains and it will do so forever because the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, lives forever. He lives forever. So Luke mentions all 11 disciples by name and includes others to remind us 
that even though we might at times be scattered and fearful, it is the resurrected Lord who sustains and holds his people together, which reminds us of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, who said about his sheep in John 10, 28, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Having considered some of the historical setting and the theological significance of it, we're now ready to move forward and give attention to the disciples' first order of business, which takes us all the way to verse 14. The Spirit of God inspired Luke, Luke to write these powerful words, verse 14. All these, all the first disciples, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. What an amazing truth this is. Of all the things that the disciples could have done after witnessing the ascension of Jesus, they prayed. They prayed. Not only did they pray, but the Bible says they devoted themselves to prayer, meaning they gave themselves without reservations to the exercise of prayer. Here then we come face to face with what has been the first foundational conviction of all believers throughout the ages, even from the very beginning. Namely, we must be a people of prayer. John Owen said this, he defined prayer like this. Prayer is one of the most significant duties of religion. Without prayer, there neither is nor can be the exercise of any religion in the world. The neglect of prayer, in fact, Listen to this. This is powerful from John Owen. The neglect of prayer, in fact, is a sufficient evidence of practical atheism. For he that does not pray says in his heart, there is no God. So let me ask you, do you pray? Do you pray? Undoubtedly, the people of God by necessity means to be the people of God by necessity means to be a people of prayer. It cannot be otherwise. The question I will seek to answer this morning as we consider this subject is simply why, why, why do we need to pray? Why did the first disciples pray? Why did they see the need to devote themselves to prayer? Now our text is going to shed much light upon these questions. And I hope to show you right now, I will give you five reasons to pray as exemplified by the first disciples. The first reason might, might, might just be the most important one. Prayer, number one, we pray. First reason to pray. Prayer is the outflow of beholding the glory of Christ. Prayer is the outflow of beholding the glory of Christ. Don't miss the order of the events. First, they beheld the glory of the risen Lord Jesus and his subsequent ascension. Then they prayed. This reminded me of the story of Moses. Consider the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 33. We find Moses voicing one of the most remarkable requests ever made to God. When he asked, please show me what? Show me your glory. The Bible says that the Lord answered and it says the Lord passed before Moses. 
And how did Moses respond to this magnificent moment? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Interesting how the glory of God has this effect upon men. Whenever they see it, they bow their heads. Likewise, here in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, we see the disciples experiencing the same, but in a way that Moses could not have imagined. While Moses saw the glory of God to an extent as he was hidden behind a rock, the disciples beheld the glory of God fully disclosed in the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did they do in response? They quickly returned to Jerusalem. They went to the upper room and they fell on their knees in prayer. Brothers and sisters, it is evident based on the testimony of the disciples that prayer is the first manifestation of a life that has been captured by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the closer you are to Christ, the more you will want to pray. Now, I understand that this might be somewhat counterintuitive. Some of us might be tempted to think that the more you know Jesus and the more you grow in your knowledge of Jesus, the less need for prayer. Because the more you know him, the stronger Christian you will be. Let's bring this logic to the experience of the first disciples. You would think that a vision of the resurrected Christ, along with the subsequent ascension of Christ, would be enough to make you feel superior, independent, and self-confident. You would think that after such magnificent sights, the disciples would have been ready to go immediately and start conquering the world. But that's not what we see. If the disciples can teach us anything is precisely that the opposite is true. The greater the glory they saw, the greater their need for prayer. The glorious sight of the exalted Jesus led them straight to their knees. This is what's amazing about this particular place in the Bible after seeing what they saw and hearing what they heard, they were not puffed up, arrogant, or impulsive. Rather, they were in a state of utter dependence upon the Lord. They wanted communion with God. Therefore, what the disciples are teaching us here in these verses is that the higher your view of Jesus is, the deeper your life of prayer will be. Show me a church, a family, or an individual who are devoted to prayer. And I will show you a church, a family, or individual who are seeking to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you pray? Are we a people of prayer? Second reason to pray. Prayer assumes a unified purpose. Prayer assumes a unified purpose. How did they pray? The Bible says they prayed with one, what? A cord. That's not the car. I wish it was, but that would be cool, right? This simply means that the first disciples, which includes all the believers who were constantly gathering together during these 10, day, 10 days, were of one mind, and they were moved together toward one common goal. They were unified in purpose. 
The disciples were separate individuals who at some point in their lives had different expectations and ambitions. Take, for instance, Matthew. Who was Matthew? Well, Matthew, before Christ, he was a tax collector. He was the lowest of the low. It is likely his ambition was to have a fairly easy life working for the Roman government, make good money and enjoy it, even if it came at the cost of a horrible reputation. The same could be said of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were all fishermen. Likely their plans were simple. Let us fish until we die. Simon the Zealot was also a man with his own expectations and desires. He had the surname Zealot given to him probably because he belonged to a group known for being prone to violence. At first, the, the group saw themselves as protectors of pure religion and were willing to physically punish those who abused religion. But later, they just became a band of criminals. Note the grace of God to turn a man like Simon into an apostle. And so all these disciples, along with the rest of the believers at some point, had their own plans their own ideas about what their lives would turn out to be. They had different occupations, expectations, and plans. But suddenly, their plans are changed. And now we see them all submitting their lives to a greater plan, namely, God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. Now they share one great purpose, to make that plan known on the earth. And even though I don't believe this meant that all believers had to quit their jobs and occupations, I believe that everything took on a whole new meaning for them. Now their lives, their occupations, and everything about them became subservient to Christ. Everything became a tool for witnessing. And this has been the ever-present characteristic of true Christians around the world, single-mindedness in purpose. And this is why we pray. We pray because we are united in one great purpose. We want to see the kingdom of God grow in the world. We want to see the name of Jesus known and believed. We want the gospel to prevail in the hearts of unbelievers and the word of God to advance in the hearts of believers. So we may have different prayer requests at different times in our lives. But our overarching purpose of spreading the knowledge of the Lord remains unchanged. And this is the prayer of all believers. Therefore, we pray because we have a unified purpose. In this regard, let us be careful careful with excessive individualism. Excessive individualism. Now, I understand that there is a good kind of individualism. uh, The type that encourages freedom. Uh, When Herbert Hoover coined the term rugged individualism, that's what he had in mind. The type of individualism that allows for the free exercise of your faculties and your skills, which eventually contributes to the progress of society. The type of individualism that I'm cautioning us against is the one that drives you inward and leads you to forget that your life as a believer in Christ is meant to serve the purposes of God, not yourself interests. I believe that very often, very often, 
people who become disillusioned with the church is because they have turned inward and have lost sight of the greater purpose. So here's a question for us to meditate upon. Could it be that the reason we struggle so much to pray together and individually and make it a priority is that we are easily consumed with our individualism and quickly forget the kingdom? Could it be? Actually, that wasn't a question. It was a statement. I believe it is true. So remember that in Christ, we are a new humanity with a new identity and a new purpose, a new destiny and a new common bond, namely the spirit of God who makes us like Christ in this regard. We must be of one accord, which will necessarily lead us to pray your kingdom come. Now the third reason to pray prayer is a supernatural endeavor. Prayer is a supernatural endeavor. Prayer cannot be done in the flesh. Prayer is a supernatural endeavor. So let me ask you, how mindful are you of prayer? Few questions are more important than this one. How can I make such a statement for the simple reason that prayer is the work of the spirit in the life of believers? The disciples prayed with one accord. They prayed in unity and all unity in the church and among believers is a spiritual blessing. Or as Paul said in Ephesians 4, 3, the unity of the church is the unity of the spirit to pray with one accord cannot be done apart from the invisible work of the Holy spirit in us. This is what I mean when I say that prayer is a supernatural endeavor and herein lies the importance of the question I asked a few moments ago, how mindful are you of prayer? But wait a minute. How can I say that this unity is the work of the spirit when the spirit in this particular section hadn't come yet? Right? I mean, Jesus was physically gone to heaven and the spirit hadn't come yet. Was the world void of God's presence for 10 full days? Moreover, how were the disciples able to pray if the spirit was not in their midst? I think the answer is this. The spirit has never been inactive at any point in human history. Just go back to the Old Testament. The spirit was very much active in the Old Testament, empowering God's people, revealing truth to the prophets and kings. In fact, the apostle Peter even says that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets as they searched and inquired about the sufferings of the Messiah. If this was true in the Old Testament, how much more it would have been in the New Testament period, especially after the ascension of the Lord Jesus. The spirit was at work in these first believers, even before Pentecost. The difference between these 10 days and Pentecost is the extent or the abundance with which the spirit is poured out. But make no mistake about it. These first disciples believed that Jesus is Lord. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in whom? In the Holy Spirit. So yes, the spirit was at work in these believers, even before Pentecost. Otherwise they would not have known how to pray 
but they prayed with one accord, which can only mean that they prayed as the spirit led them for there cannot be unity apart from the spirit of God. Fourth reason to pray is this prayer reminds us of the impossibility of our task. Prayer reminds us of the impossibility of our task. In other words, prayer keeps us humble for prayer reminds us that nothing happens apart from the strength of the Lord. Nothing happens apart from the strength of the Lord. You know what I do when I step into the pulpit every, every Sunday, it doesn't look like it. You know what I'm doing? Can you guess? The whole sermon is about this. I pray, I pray, I pray before I get up here, as I'm walking up the steps, I'm praying because I know that if I don't pray, if the spirit doesn't move, nothing will happen. And prayer reminds me that this is the work of God. If anything of eternal significance takes place here is because of God. As the disciples contemplated the task ahead of them of going into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, they had no other option but to pray, to ask for the Lord's power. Thus, our need for prayer has not changed. It has not changed. We are the same. We are helpless without the Lord. And the fifth and final reason to pray are many more than we could talk about. But I'm going to give you one last one. Prayer is the voice of faith. Prayer is the voice of faith. What do you think they prayed about? Well, I believe that they prayed in a very specific way for the coming of the Spirit. In other words, the disciples prayed not out of doubt, but out of faith in the promise of Jesus. In this regard, John Owen said this prayer is a gift, ability, or spiritual faculty of exercising faith, exercising faith, love, reverence, fear, delight, and other graces through vocal requests, supplications, and praises to God. Prayer is the exercise of faith. I believe based on the context, and as we will see when we get to verse 16, that the disciples prayed out of conviction, conviction that God's word is true and fully trustworthy. As Peter will say, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there. Prayer is the voice of biblical conviction. Faith speaks through prayer. In other words, we pray because we believe. We believe in the power, authority, inerrancy, clarity, trustworthiness, and sufficiency of the word of God. Therefore, we pray. We pray. So let's consider those two questions at the end, and we'll be done. What is chiseling away? At this foundational conviction, obviously I'm asking this question in light of the illustration I gave you at the beginning. If prayer is a foundational conviction of the Christian life, if we are in the basement, then what is the primary attack upon it? What does it look like for the janitor to come and chisel away one brick at a time? How does that happen when it comes to prayer? Well, 
there is one primary attack that is constantly weakening our prayer life. Earthly mindedness. Earthly mindedness. Which can be the product of both the trials and sorrows of this life as well as the pleasures of this world. You see, when we pray, when we pray, we engage with the world of the unseen. We engage with the world of the unseen. The greatest enemy to prayer is to grow too attached to the world of that which is seen. Our greatest enemy when it comes to prayer then is the eyes because through the eyes, we experience the world and through the eyes, we are drawn to the world. So on the one hand, we battle against the lust of the eyes, meaning the pleasures of the world. And on the other hand, we battle against the discouragement that comes through the eyes as we experience sorrows and trials in this fallen world. These things can lead us away from prayer because they create a sense of ultimacy when it comes to living in this world. Let me, let me repeat that. These things can lead us away from prayer because they create a sense of ultimacy when it comes to living in this world. These things can eventually convince us that there is no more beyond this reality. Slowly but surely, our souls begin to drop anchor in the things that can be seen. And the more attached you are to the visible, the less need you will have to engage with the invisible. So, how do we strengthen this conviction of prayer? How do we strengthen this conviction? How do we put the bricks back in the foundation? Well, we must be intentional. We must remember that we live in the world of the unseen. This may sound overly simplistic, but it is not. It is not. In fact, this is what the apostle Paul did. As he himself went through much sorrows and many trials, all of which were in connection to his role as an apostle, Paul remembered the spiritual and invisible nature of his hope. Now, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. And by the way, I love it when Kevin and I are of the same mind. This has happened a few times already, and I love when that happens. When he quotes a verse that I have had in mind all week. And uh, a lot of those details are not planned. They just happen that way, and I love it because it is the Lord saying, you need to hear these verses. You really need to hear these verses. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18 what did Paul say as he considered his own trials and tribulations and sorrows? Second Corinthians four sixteen. So we do not lose heart though. Our outer, outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And here verse 18 as we look, do you hear the intentionality of the words of Paul? As we look, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
they are eternal. Consider how Paul understood his life, even his trials. We must live our lives always holding before our spiritual eyes, the realities that come to us through promises. We must uphold the promises that we read about in scripture and live in light of those promises. By doing so, we will persevere in prayer. So my invitation is simple. Let us live our lives always beholding these promises. So as we come together this morning and we partake of the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, let us remember the one we have not seen and yet love. The one who died for our sins to pay the price upon the cross. The one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for our transgressions. We have not seen him, yet we love him. We have not seen him, yet we await his return. Let us consider these invisible realities. Brothers and sisters, we belong to God. Christ is our Lord. He died and rose again. The spirit of God is with us. This is the world in which we live, the things that are unseen. Therefore, let us devote ourselves to prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this simple yet important reminder that just as the first disciples devoted themselves to prayer, so we too need to devote ourselves to the same task. For we live in this world, but yet we are not of this world. We live in the world of the unseen. We live in the world of promises which have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. But we know that he will return. And so as we live our lives in this fallen world, help us, Lord, not to lose sight of that which is unseen, but to remember the one who died for our sins and who rose again and who ascended into heaven and who will return. So we need the help of the Spirit as we live a life of prayer. Help us, Lord, to devote ourselves to this wonderful, wonderful task of being in communion with you as we consider the world of the unseen. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.